I'd like you to go back in your minds to a situation that took place about 2,000 years ago. I'm sorry, 3,000 years ago. And a little old prophet by the name of Nathan walks into the palace of the great king of Israel by the name of David. And Nathan begins to tell David a story. And he tells him that there was a very wealthy man in the land who owned many flocks and many herds. Extremely wealthy. There was another man who was extremely poor. The story goes that he had one tiny ewe lamb, which he treated as if it was part of his family. He would feed it. He would care for it. He would welcome it into his home. In fact, the story goes on that this little lamb is treated as if it was the man's daughter. And then a visitor comes to the wealthy man. And when the visitor arrives, the wealthy man, instead of preparing a meal from his own flock, takes the little lamb from the poor man, kills it, and serves it to his guest. David listens to that story and in an angry response says, that man should die. And then Nathan looks at him and says, you are the man. You're the one. Nathan goes on to tell him, you were the one who killed Uriah. You used the enemy to kill him, but you killed him. And then you took his wife, as it were, a little lamb, and you laid with her. And you committed these horrible, horrible sins that you yourself would condemn. When we look at Romans chapter 2, Paul is telling us precisely the same thing about people that consider themselves to be moral. And there is a change that takes place in the flow from the first chapter into the second. When... Paul wrote about the sinful behavior of the pagan, the person who had no God, other than the gods that he made up for himself. He condemned the things that they did. And now he turns his attention to people who would be good, moral, upstanding citizens. They would claim to know God, but they don't know the true and the living God because their faith is not focused in the person of Christ. And so he brings to them an understanding of their circumstance, which is very, very similar to the circumstance of David and what he did with Uriah and what he did with Bathsheba. And he is now called out by the prophet Nathan. Go back to Romans chapter 2, and look with me, if you will, please, at that first verse where it says, Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Have you ever noticed that a lot of times the things that we find most annoying and most... um, Difficult to deal with in the lives of other people are things that are very much in line with what we do. Uh, l- let, me, let me put it this way. You young people, 
Are there any things in your parents' lives that you don't like? Oh, <laughs> dead silence. <laughs> Come on, you guys, have some guts. Are there any things that you don't like? You, you, okay, there's one. <laughs> Most of you guys are noncommittal, aren't you? You're, you're not going to say anything. But may I just give you a warning? The things that you find out in your parents' lives that you don't like are going to be the very things that you wind up doing the same. And the reason I know that is because your parents did the stuff that their parents did that they didn't like. Did you ever hear uh, someone say to another individual, oh, you're just like your mother? That's usually not a compliment. (laughs) Or you're just like your father, and that's usually not a compliment. That would be on the domestic level. But Paul is taking us way beyond that. He says this, you all know that murder is wrong. It is a sin. Yet you harbor hatred in your heart for your neighbor. You all know that adultery is sin. Yet you lust after that woman or that man who is not your mate. You all know that stealing is a sin. You would condemn that in the life of the pagan. But you will wheel and deal with some really questionable behavior in order to advance your own financial condition. You know that it's wrong to gossip, but you gossip. And I would suspect that when this letter was being read to the church at Rome, it became as quiet there as it has here. Because the issues of which he is speaking are the issues that the good moral person would condemn and yet be guilty of him or herself. When Paul addresses this situation, he is warning people by saying this, the judgment that you use to evaluate another person's behavior, be very, very careful because the way you judge is the same standard by which you yourself will be judged. You hate your neighbor, you are guilty in your heart of murder. You condemn adultery, but in your heart, with your lust, you have already committed adultery. You condemn stealing, but because of the way you wheel and deal, or perhaps even neglect the things that you ought to do for your employer, you are guilty of stealing. And so now he's kind of leveled the playing field because he's saying the very things that we would use to condemn the pagan are the very same things that would condemn us. And he says, be very careful. As he moves into the second verse, he begins to help us understand that there is going to be a judgment that comes 
And he wants us to understand the basis upon which that judgment is going to be leveled. He begins by telling us this, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. So when God judges all, the the basis of judgment is going to be truth. What is the truth? You can't hide things from God. And God does not lie. He does not deceive. There's no deception in him. But when he looks at who we are, he sees us exactly the way we are. And so Paul goes on in the next verse, in verse 3, to tell us this. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? The answer to that question is no. All who are guilty of sin will be found guilty of sin. You may never have murdered someone, but if you have hated a person to such an extent that as far as you're concerned, if they were dead, you would be happy. You have committed murder, and God knows that. He fully comprehends that. And he holds those who consider themselves to be moral to the standard of holiness that is equal to his own. And we all fall short of that. So anyone that is guilty of sin will be judged as guilty of sin. How many of us have sinned? (laughs) All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's nobody that's going to escape this evaluation. We are sinners and we have been found such by a holy God and we in and of ourselves cannot change that he tells us more about that judgment that's coming when he tells us this in verse 4 or do you despise the riches of his goodness forbearance and long-suffering not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance All who spurn the goodness of God are going to be found guilty of sin as well. There are people who believe this. You know, I have really been blessed in this life. Look at all the things that I possess. I have experienced good health throughout my life. I have faced very, very few problems. I've been on the receiving end of wonderful things. I've enjoyed life to the full. I I have experienced pretty much everything that life has to offer. You know, God must really like me. And because of the goodness of God, there is a misevaluation of the heart of that individual who believes because of the blessings that he has been receiving, he has been specially blessed by God and he must be in the right relationship with God. The person that would fall into this category would include those who believe that by a good life they can please God. If I do the right thing, then God will be pleased, and not only will he bless me here and now, but he will take me to be with himself in heaven one day. And they deceive themselves into thinking that there is a self-righteousness that they possess, when the reality is the Lord says just the opposite. Did you see that at the end of the verse, where it says, 
not knowing that the goodness of God is leading you to repentance. When you experience the good things of God, it should bring you to the place where you stand before him in awe and say, I don't deserve these things. You have been good to me in a way that I don't deserve. You know, we, we see this all around us. You, you read the, the writings of people who are um, atheists, let's say or people who have a vendetta against who the Lord is and and what he does. And you see in their lives good things happening. You, You know that some of your neighbors are real scoundrels, and the way they conduct their business is dishonest, and you know that they have prospered because of their dishonesty. And you think, Lord, how can this be? And we scratch our heads thinking that that is really a sign of God blessing them. Do you remember that, how even the psalmist used to say, why is it that the wicked prosper? Why does that happen? And the Lord's response to that is this. By showing them good things, I am desiring to bring them to the place where they turn away from their sin and turn to me because I'm the one that gives every good and perfect gift. But for some, they look at this as as if it's something they deserve. That God is just being special to them because they're special people. And the Lord says, no, no. It's my goodness that is designed to bring you to repentance. And unless you repent, you are going to perish. That leads us to the last part of what he says there in verse 4. Pardon me, verse 5. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. All who refuse to repent are going to be found guilty. When we talk about repentance, and and you've probably heard this many times, we're talking about a complete about-face from our involvement with sinful behavior, recognizing that sin condemns. Sin brings death. And the very sinfulness of our behavior, when we turn away from it, we have to turn to something else. There can't be a vacuum. And so what he is saying is, if you don't turn and accept Christ and bring him into your life, there will be a vacuum that ultimately will bring you right back to the sin that at one time you understood was wrong. So he's saying, unless you repent, what is happening is, God's wrath is building the entire time that you refuse to repent. Have any of you ever seen the Hoover Dam? Okay, some of you have seen it, or any other dam for that matter. Um, You know how the water continues to pour in behind the walls of the dam. And there are little release valves that allow some of the water to escape. In the process of that, we generate electricity and we use that uh, for the purpose sometimes of, uh, of uh, providing water for the, the crops and it's used to irrigate and, and things of that nature. The picture that God is giving us here about the unrepentant is this. It is as if the wrath of God is this water that is building up behind the dam. A little bit is being released. 
Do you remember how it's said earlier in the first chapter that a quality of God's wrath is being revealed already? And how people being given over to their own lustful desires, men with men, women with women, is the product of a wrath being poured out by God. So that God is using the very desires of people who choose to live a sinful lifestyle. He is using that lifestyle itself as a judgment. But then he says this. The day is coming in which the dam is going to break. And all of God's wrath is going to be poured out. So when he concludes this fifth verse, he says... You are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That's when the dam breaks. And so he says to the moralist, the person that thinks they're all okay, you've passed judgment on the pagan. Now it's time to look in the mirror because you're not going to escape. Judgment's coming. Paul addresses another issue that's going to arise, and that is that there is going to be a judgment that is going to be based not only upon truth, but now upon something that seems to be a bit contradictory, upon our works. Look at what he says at verse 6. Who will render to each one according to his deeds, the things that he has done, his works, Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek or of the Gentile, the non-Jew. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Well, now this becomes a bit of a problem. Doesn't the Bible say that our salvation is not based upon works? Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. How can that square with the fact that our works are going to be judged? The reason is he is not looking primarily at salvation itself. The reason is salvation is by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ and that alone. I I want you to see this. Well, you you all remember what, what Paul wrote to the Philippians. By grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Are you familiar with that passage? Okay, that in and of itself would be enough. But I want you to see what Paul goes on to say later in this, uh, this epistle to the Romans. You may not even have to turn your page. Look at chapter 3 and begin following as I read at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. 
even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. When he speaks of salvation, he does not have works enter the picture at all. So what he is writing about here in Romans chapter 2 is not that our salvation is based upon our works, but our works will demonstrate whether or not genuine salvation has really taken place. I know I've said this to you before, but this is a very, very important principle to lay hold of. When a person trusts Christ as Savior, there is such a change that takes place. The Bible calls it regeneration. There is a new life that is imputed to us because of a righteousness of God given to us by his grace that gives us forgiveness of sins based upon the sacrifice of Christ, and it gives us the gift of eternal life. That changes the way we live. And people get this backward. They think if you do good works, God will accept you and he'll take you to heaven. Where the Bible says, no, your good works are as filthy rags and putrefying sores in my sight. It's not by works of righteousness, but it's taking me at my word. Stop calling me a liar. I told you, I gave you my son to die on the cross for your sins, to be buried, to rise again from the dead. Do you believe that or not? And there's the rub. Because if you're not resting in what Christ did through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, your sins can never be forgiven. You have called God a liar. You have violated his truth. And all that's left is a life that demonstrates your lostness and ultimate condemnation. It's pretty serious stuff. So what God is saying here, if, if there has genuinely been a transformation when you trusted Christ as Savior, something's going to happen. You're not going to be able to live the way you used to live. The, the, the cursing you did, that's got to stop. The, the dishonesty now becomes a, a, a reprehensible thing. And, and now you have to deal with the issues of coming to truth and, and maybe even revealing what you've done. Because there's a whole new life that's inside of us. And Paul says, do you understand that when you have this life, when, when you put your trust in Christ as your Savior, something happens you demonstrate patient continuance in doing good, seeking for glory, honor, and immortality. So that what he's saying is this, is that you are going to give evidence of the new life that you have and the judgment of your works is going to demonstrate itself or be evaluated in such a way as to whether or not you are genuinely regenerated. When we know Christ as Savior, we are placed in a position that no unsaved person can be in. Let, let, me, let me just put this out because this is going to be tough to lay hold of if you don't know Christ. If you know Christ as your Savior, you'll get this. 
if you know the Savior and your next-door neighbor does not. Hey, I, you know what? I'm going to put this in a context that, that we're, we're ready with right now. Aren't you glad you don't live in Boston? Okay. <laughs> At least for now. I, I'm not trashing Boston. Don't anybody think that's what I'm doing? What I'm saying is this. Right now, I would not want to be in Boston. They're supposed to be getting another foot of snow on top of the six or seven feet that they've already gotten, and my heart breaks for them. <laughs> anyway, let's say you lived in Boston, and you were a believer, and your next-door neighbor is not a believer. And across the street, there is an elderly lady who does not have the capability to dig herself out or to go to the store to get food. Both you and your neighbor go out, and you take your shovels, and you do an equal amount of work. You shovel, you put the, the snow at some place where it won't create another problem. You, you get her walkway cleared. Then you both knock on the door and you say, listen, um, I've got a four-wheel drive. I can get to the grocery store. What can I pick up for you? And she says, well, I could use some, some milk, I could use some eggs, I could use some bread, I could use some lunch meat, and I could use some candy. Um, come on, we, we want to be real about this, okay? Um, and so you both go to the store, you split the cost, and you come back and you give that to her. How does God evaluate what was just done? This is the rub. How does God look at that? On the human level, it is a kind, gracious, wonderful thing to do for both, both the believer and the unbeliever. But from the spiritual dimension, these acts are looked at totally differently. For the believer, this is looked upon as a good work that God will honor and he will reward. And for the unbeliever, it is sin. Can you swallow that? I mean, from, from my point of view, that is really hard to swallow. Because I look and I say, well, they did the same thing. Shouldn't they be evaluated the same way? And God's answer is no. On one hand, one of you is my children. On the other hand, that one is the son of Satan. Oh, oh did I say that? Yes. Do you remember how Christ spoke to the really religious people of his day and said, you are of your father, the devil? We have a different father. And our Heavenly Father looks at what we did and he says, that was really good. I appreciate, well, he wouldn't say it in those terms, but what you did was a good thing that was a right thing to do for that neighbor. But you, what you did was sin. How in the world do you come to that conclusion? Whatever is not of faith is sin. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's not the way I would think. But God's told us something completely different. 
in his sight, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, nothing is a righteous work. If it were, you could do enough to work your way to heaven. But you can't. The only way to heaven is through faith in Jesus Christ. All of the good works in God's sight are looked upon as sinful acts, even though they're identical. Does that make sense? I'm not asking if you fully grasp why it works that way. But I am asking you to acknowledge this. It's exactly what God says. It is precisely what he has described. And see, the sad part we we have today is this. Well, I've got all these good neighbors. And quite honestly, I do. I've got really good neighbors. Are any of them believers? Yes, some of them are. But some of them are not. And they could all do the same thing. And on one hand, the believers are doing a work that pleases God, and the unbelievers are doing things that are only looked upon as sin before the Father. Whatever is not of faith is sin, the writer of Hebrews tells us. And so what the Lord is pointing out to us here is that the works that we have will give evidence of the spiritual standing that we have before him. And that spiritual standing is going to result in judgment. Both the believer and the unbeliever are going to be judged. But they're going to be at very different places. The unbeliever is going to stand before the great white throne. And the Bible says that you're going to be judged by your works there. There are going to be evaluations of the things that you did. Now, if you struggled with what I told you a few minutes ago, listen to this. All of the works that you performed, if you do not know Christ as your Savior, will be evaluated The books will be opened and our works will become the basis of our evaluation. When we're judged for our works, you lied. That's a sin. You helped the neighbor across the street. That's a sin. You gave to the poor. That's a sin. You help support the orphanage in Nepal. That's a sin. You were unfaithful to your mate. That's a sin. And you go right down the list and all of the things that have been part of your life become manifest and God looks at that book and without any hesitation says, you are are a sinner. And we could all be there, but for one thing. There is another book that's opened, and it's called the Book of Life. It has nothing to do with our works. Our works have demonstrated who we are, what we are, lost sinners, dead in trespasses and sins, conformers to the age in which we live, rebellious against the true and the living God, essentially calling him a liar because we don't believe what he did in Christ. And as a result of that, we look for the name in the book of life. And your name's not there. 
And the Bible says, when that is revealed, that your name does not appear there, you are cast into the place that was designed for Satan and his demons. And the Bible describes it as the lake of fire, where the smoke of their torment ascends forever. Oh, a loving God wouldn't do that. No, if God was just love, he would not do that. But God is also holy, and he is righteous. And so his love does not overshadow his holiness. When he looks at those who are believers, he doesn't have us standing at the great white throne. Because only the people that are going to be there are going to be people whose names are not found written in the book of life. He's going to have us stand before what's called the judgment seat, the Bema seat, where our works will be evaluated. Our salvation has been secured through the righteousness of Christ and our identification with him. But now what about reward? You ever hear of the music group Casting Crowns? That's kind of a neat name because the idea is when we stand before the Lord, he will evaluate our works. The things that are worthless will be burned up. The things that were of no value. But the things that are of spiritual and eternal value, the kind deed that you did for that lady across the street, what you did for the hungry, what you did for the orphan in Nepal, those those were good things. And because of that, I reward you. And then the Bible tells us that we will take our crowns of reward and we will cast them back at Jesus' feet. That's a neat name for a group, isn't it? Casting crowns. Any, any praise comes right back to the Lord. And so the judgment is going to be based upon our works. But it isn't going to depend solely on our works. It's going to depend upon our relationship with the Father. The final thing that he talks about follows there, uh, beginning down in verse 11. And at verse 11, we read this. For there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For uh, There's a problem. The doers of the law will be justified. Pastor, do you understand that that verse just contradicted totally everything you just said to us? Quick, let's go on. Want to get away from that. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts according, uh, accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. You all know I'm not running from that passage. You all understand that, right? How can he say that if you have kept the law, you will be found righteous? 
He is not contradicting anything that I've said to you, nor is he contradicting anything else that he has written in the scriptures. Because our keeping the law does not depend upon our fallenness, but upon our affiliation. When the Lord says, if you keep the law, you'll have eternal life. But you can't keep the law because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what's the answer? Turn in your Bibles back to the 8th chapter. See, Paul's not going to leave any of this stuff dangling without an answer. He gives an answer to all of the issues that can be raised and cause the questions about what seems to be contradictory. Look at the first verse. I'm going to read down through verse 4. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are... In Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Oh, there's a different law, a law that's higher than the law of Moses the moral law by which people will be judged, the standards of of holiness and of righteousness. But now there's another law, a law of sin, or pardon me, the law of the Spirit that's made me free from the law of sin sin and death. Verse 3, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. Now what he is saying there is simply this, you and I don't have the strength to keep the law. The law is weak, Because it tells you do this, but it doesn't give you the power to do it. It tells you not to do that, but it doesn't give you the power not to do it. So the law was weak by virtue of its very nature. So he says this, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Who did he describe as walking according to the Spirit? Those who are in Christ. What did he just tell us? If you keep the law, you will have eternal life. And if you and I had the ability to do that on our own, we could work our way into heaven. But none of us have that ability, so we have to be associated with someone who did have that ability, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. And when we trust him, we are in him, and we have kept the law in him. That's why God can set us free from bondage. And he puts us under the law of life where once we were under the law of death. So when we come back, what we find is that the judgment is not going to be based upon any favoritism. In other words, the the Jew who has greater privileges than the Gentile, because the Jews were given the covenants. The Jews, is it 10 after? I hate that clock. Jews had an advantage, and here's what God says. There is no advantage to being a Jew. You know, we we judge 
based upon favoritism. You could have two people ask you to do the same thing, and depending on who it is that asks will determine what answer you give. Somebody you don't really care for asks you to do something. The answer is really easy. Oh, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Somebody else that is a good friend of yours, they come and ask you to do so. Oh, sure, I'd be glad to help you. God does not work that way. God does not do things based on favoritism. He is truthful, he is honest, he is just. And he says the Jew has no greater advantage than the Gentile. In other words, if the Jew does not come to faith in Jesus Christ, he will be lost forever. He goes on to say the same thing about the Gentile. Those who don't have as great a privilege. Whoop, didn't get the right one there. Those with lesser privilege have no advantage. That's all I'm going to say about that. You all understand what that means. You can read through that and, and you will be able to evaluate in the light of what we just said, but don't put your things away yet. Okay? Do you all understand that the day is coming in which all of the secrets of our lives are going to be revealed? The thoughts, the words, the conversations that we've had, the things that we've done. And if we are in Christ, those things have been forgiven. Why? Because the penalty that accompanies all of that bad behavior, all of the sin of which we are guilty, which includes even the things that we think are good, whatever is not of faith is sin. If you are not in, in Christ through faith, then everything you do before God is as, as he said, filthy rags, putrefying sores. He is not pleased with anything because you're not part of his family. Nothing will please him except his son. And when we are in his son, then we pass from death into life and we find that through Christ we have eternal life because... All of the judgment that was due to us was placed upon him at the cross of Calvary. That deserves an amen. Christ took all. You know what? Where the fire has burned, it can't burn again. And the fire of judgment burned at Calvary. I, I remember hearing this story about this family and many families that would go across the, the plains um, a century or two ago. And as they would be going across the plains, there would occasionally be this thing called a prairie fire. And the prairie fire would be burning its way toward them as the wind would be blowing the flames. And the prairie, which is dry as tinder. We, we still read about that when we see the stuff that's going on, like in Yellowstone, when they break out with the fires and stuff like that. Those things burn in the prairies. A, a, a heat lightning can, can strike and start this fire, and it burns. And the people would look and they'd see the fire coming at them, and there'd be no way of escape. They could not outrun it because the, the wind was faster than they could go. And the, the width and breadth of that fire was too far to get around it. So they would do something that was really life-saving. They set another fire. They burned the prairie behind them. 
And the same wind that was driving the flames toward them took the fire behind them and drove it away. And once the fire had burned the area behind them, they would go into that area again because where the fire had already burned, it can't burn again. When you trust in Christ as your Savior, the fire has burned. And though you and I deserve to be judged, we can't be judged again. I hope you know Christ. If you don't, will you trust him today? If you sense in your heart that the Lord is drawing you and saying, you need my righteousness, you don't have any of your own. I took your judgment for you. Then go to the cross and trust in Christ. Will you stand with me, please? Father, we don't know why in your grace you have chosen to allow people like myself who are sinful, who are unrighteous and undeserving of your love, of your grace, and of your mercy. We don't understand why you've drawn us to yourself, but we are truly grateful. We are eternally grateful. And we thank you, Father, that in spite of our evaluation of ourselves that often totally misses the mark, you've told us who and what we are, and you've revealed the way of redemption through the person of Christ. Thank you for him. Thank you for what you're doing in hearts and lives even now. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.